0: hi uh, Stephen. hi dr Pellic. welcome Um Actually, oh, okay
1: i'm sorry i meant to mention
0: that pellick
1: yeah
0: pellick like yeah so welcome um thank you so much for coming out i wanted to say to the audience this is uh dr pellick's second appearance on uh, Tish Talk. uh there was a uh Glitch the first time. So we're gonna do a great chat. I really enjoyed speaking to you. We had such a good chat the last time. You're such a kind man. I wanted to thank you profusely for your time and all that you've done uh, in Canada. And first, could you give us a little bit of a background on yourself, your work, and your uh, natural immunity study?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, basically, I'm a professor in the Department of Neurology. Um, I'm sorry, in the the division of neurology, in the faculty of medicine, Department of Medicine. I've been on faculty for about 33 years. I'm also the president and chief scientific officer of Connexus Bioinformatics Corporation. Uh, We've been in business for about 22 years, actually using antibodies in our research, uh, studying cancer proteins. And uh, also, I'm the chair of the scientific and medical advisory committee for the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. And so, we're a very active group that's been studying the, um, the whole pandemic situation from the, the science through to the, the legal and the, uh, uh, the the human rights issues, uh, the whole gamut. But, but at Conexus, we've been developing a we have a clinical trial. that has been in place for about 22 months now. We've been monitoring the levels of natural immunity and also vaccine-induced immunity in people. We have about 3,500 people that have been in our trial. And the upshot of it is that we find that 90% of the people that we test actually have antibodies against the virus uh, naturally acquired. And that includes the people that are vaccinated.
0: That's an incredible result. I mean, 90% of the population is basically immune to COVID at this point. So we've basically achieved herd com- immunity, would you say from your perspective? Yes,
1: and I think that accounts for one of the reasons why since really um, March of 2021, the death rate had plummeted in the country. We've had you know these resurgences, of three more peaks, the last one being the largest peak uh, of case numbers, but this hasn't been translated into the same number of people going to the hospital or even into IC units and uh, in this case, where what we're actually seeing is that, yeah, they're, they're little bumps, but overall they're extremely low. We see large case numbers. And so natural immunity doesn't mean that you won't get sick, but it's less likely to progress to a point where you it's serious enough to, to become hospitalized. And we're seeing with Omicron in general that it's about two to three days uh, that most people get sick. and it's more mild. And in terms of being translated into, if you're infected, going to hospital, it's about four or five t- times less likely than, for example, the delta isoform. So I actually attribute that not so much to the effectiveness of the vaccines, because they're clearly waning, but rather it's just the growth of the acquisition of Herd immunity already now in our population.
0: That's actually incredible news for all Canadians. You know, this whole fear that so many people feel about mm-hmm. getting sick can be lifted when you understand that you may have already acquired natural immunity or some protection at least from COVID. You know, I mean, how did you get involved in the Canadian COVID Carolines? What was your uh, inspiration there? I mean, I think it's an incredible organization. I'd love for you to tell the audience more about it.
1: Well, actually, they they found me because I was oh. part of the
0: Pan COVID Network,
1: which is research scientists across the country about weekly presenting, you know, their research findings to the rest of the scientific community working on COVID nineteen, and. Uh, I had made some statements in there about the uh, clinical trial that we had underway at Conexus. And so researchers largely out of the University of Guelph, Byron Bridal and the body yes. Mallard. Know them people. well,
0: wonderful yeah, people.
1: They reached out to me and, and told me about their organization. I attended some meetings. I found that they were very intelligent, mm-hmm. dedicated individuals. Uh, they had clearly the expertise. And what I have to say, it resonated with them because they're seeing the same thing. So then we actually, with a few other people, uh, founded the Canadian Code Care Alliance. Today it has, I think, well over 1,600 members. Uh, But what's important is that that membership has a lot of professionals. So over 600 of them are actually medical doctors, research scientists in universities, uh, health professionals of various kinds, and, and lawyers. And so we have about 21 committees, of which I chair the scientific and medical advisor committee. We have about 26 people on our committee, and most of them are PhD scientists. And so these committees go over various aspects of the COVID uh, situation. And then all of anything that deals with the science comes to my committee and, and we, we vet it to try to make sure it's accurate. Our goal is really to be uh balanced to be evidence-based to be scientifically sound and unfortunately we're seeing on both the mainstream media side clear clear um, misinformation that's been yes. propagated. and yeah. of course you see this with social media in the extremes as well And our goal is to try to to provide a venue by which people can get information that has been scientifically vetted but is balanced So they're getting more of a complete story so In some cases, we we use data, in fact, from the same data the mainstream media is supposed to be um, accessing, like from the public health authorities' uh, websites, from scientific journals. Uh, We pay attention to the news. And then uh, we have our own internal meetings, and many of us have our own research programs so we're exchanging information. So it's really taking all this information and trying to to figure out re- really what is going on here yes and, and once you have to understand what's happening then you can come across with with really strategies that going to be more effective in dealing with this problem what? fortunately the strategies we have right now they've been completely ineffective
0: and actually harmful oh what think there's such a gap between the real data, the data that a lot of us can see who've worked in healthcare and, you know, brilliant minds and people who have high integrity uh, like yourself and a number of the other doctors and scientists involved on the Canadian COVID care lines and what the health officials are telling people because there's this clear divide. The information is so, uh, it, it, it's from one extreme to the next. Yeah, and how can know. yeah, and how can we get the real accurate information to government officials, health officials, um, so that we can actually get to the truth so we can do the right thing for all Canadians in the future with these health policies. Because they have been harmful. I think we can both agree they've been um, the data will show they've been extremely harmful. Lockdowns have caused more deaths. We have mass you know, suicide, drug addiction. We have missed uh, surgeries. Um, they, they didn't stop the spread. Uh, all of these measures have actually backfired and, and not been useful. Look at the epidemic of uh, mental illness in Canada, and particularly with our teenagers. Um, so w- w- how do you think we can actually get to the accurate information? Uh,
1: do you have any ideas? Yeah, well, everything you stated is completely correct, and it's well backed by documentation in the scientific literature that's peer-reviewed. So, I mean, there's really no question here. So, so what you raise is, well, why is it that the public health officials are taking this tact that they seem to see that the vaccines are the pretty much the only solution to this problem? You now, they're doing masking and social restrictions, which again cause these harms. But I obviously I know these these people because they're my colleagues and you know they mean well. I think that they're basing their information partly deferring to what they think other people or authorities about. So that's one thing. And then at the same time, I think there's an intimidation and a fear, especially with the medical doctors. And so they're not speaking out as much because they're concerned about losing their licenses. So I I do think that everyone is trying pretty much to solve this problem, and they have good intentions. But it seems as though we have some sort of um, a mass hysteria that encompasses also the health professionals. Mm -hmm. So that they start making actions where they're not actually spending the time to look at the scientific literature in depth. Exercise critical thinking. And then really ask themselves, like, well, is this really the best strategy? I mean, wasn't that long ago we heard that these vaccine well, the virus was deadly? We now know, especially with Omicron, that your the number if you get infected, your chances of actually dying from this now, and that includes all groups, including those that are are at high risk. You know, obviously it stratifies, but if you if you look at the entire population, we're probably looking at Probably less than a 0.1% fatality rate right now. That if you get it, you know, less than one in a thousand would probably die from it. So that's one thing. So the virus is not that deadly when you compare it to other viruses that we accept in our society without these kind of restrictions and craziness. And then on top of that, we're seeing that the vaccines themselves—they're not efficacious. We clearly see that they lose their efficacy over time usually within a few months, in fact. And the other is that that they're not safe. No. You know, we're told that they're safe, but in fact, there's a high degree of vaccine injury, over a million reports, for example, in the US uh, vaccine injury reporting system that they have there. Yes. And and I'm, I'm,
0: yes, and I've heard um, from a number of doctors who I've spoken with and interviewed, that it's incredibly hard to actually report an adverse event. It's cumbersome, it takes a lot of time, and there's a real uh, push not to report things, not not so much overtly, but it's like, are you sure that's a vaccine injury? Can you really um, assess it? So I think we're not gonna really learn the fallout, from the experimental vaccines for some time. And in the short-term data is so disturbing because there's been so many injuries and deaths already more than any vaccine in the last 30 years combined that I wonder Mm -hmm. why we're not pausing any further vaccines. That's another like obvious question. Why is it not with the obvious data that this uh, push has not been paused to reassess safety da- data, because that, that should be the most important thing for Canadians, that if you're, if you're using a, a drug, kind of like thalidomide, after a certain point, there were so many doctors that realized it was very damaging and it was pulled, what is the point that we realize that not only are these uh, experimental vaccines not effective, but they're not safe? And at what point do we pull them? And how does that justify the mandates when they're not working and they're not even safe for protecting our Canadians' health and the future of our society, and particularly our children who aren't even at risk of COVID? Right.
1: No, I mean their chances of being hospitalized is less than one in a hundred thousand if you're under eighteen, less than a million, one in a million that they would die from. In fact, much less now because those figures are based on the Delta variant and the other kind yeah. is, is is even safer. So I mean, the the issues of the whole passports for for the the vaccines to give you unrestricted access or re, or improved access to you can go out and spread the virus. I mean, the reality is that over 80% of the cases, the total cases in the country are in double vaccinated or triple vaccinated people. So you can't look at that that pool of people that are unvaccinated, somewhere around 15%, which most of those, like the vaccinated people, have natural immunity too. You, You can't distinguish those if you have um, Covid nineteen, and you are double vaccinated. Your viral load and ability to transmit is just as high as an unvaccinated person who gets Covid nineteen,
0: or maybe that's
1: higher. Yes, that's
0: yeah, what I've heard.
1: Because you're going out and you're spreading it. <laughs> unvaccinated has restricted access to, you know, um, going but to, to it, restaurants and other places. Which, it, frankly, the, the officials themselves know that that these places are not high zones of transmission mm. so yeah. it's
0: yeah, is it true that uh, with natural immunity you have that deeper T cell immunity as well, which is is maybe a longer lasting protection? This has been another disputed point, and as a you know as an expert you know as a PhD scientist you might be able to answer that because I've had some people say, well you know you don't have very lost, long lasting immunity with natural immunity, and it only lasts like two to three months versus the uh, you know, the vaccine, which lasts much longer. But the data itself actually no, says there's, the opposite. There's no
1: data, that, there's no, there's no data that, that shows that at all. I mean, if you look at the data from Alberta, which is probably the best, where they actually look at people who had COVID-19. And again, re- remember that 80% of people now that have COVID-19 are double vaccinated. So when you look at people who are vaccinated, they actually start to increase the rate of getting uh, for the first two, few days after vaccination. It actually increases your chances of getting COVID-19, and then it declines. But then by about three months, it's already now starting to peak that you're getting these reversals. So we know with the vaccines after double vaccination, that we're seeing breakthrough COVID, usually within about three to four months. And it really peaks up with Omicron at six months. Um, but, but basically six months is about all you're gonna get. Now, with natural immunity, we've been testing this um, with our, our trial for almost two years now. And we can still see people who were infected, you know, had the COVID-19 symptoms in December of 2019. And we can confirm it for those that in fact were infected in March with PCR testing. They still have antibodies today. That are still very strong and there's been numerous studies that have come out since then that actually show this preservation preservation of immunity for at least two years with natural immunity and yes. the natural immunity is against not just the spike protein but many of the other proteins in the virus including those that are on the surface and protective and it's the right kind of antibodies because these antibodies that you have in your lung in your airway spaces those ig M and IgA class antibodies are secreted into those spaces, and they encounter the virus as soon as it comes into your body. The va- the antibodies that you get from your vaccines, they're IgG antibodies. They're very low in concentrations in your airway spaces. Only in the deeper lungs do you actually have significant IgG levels. So that's what you get from the the vaccine. So the vaccine antibody induced IgGs are not actually giving you protection.
0: Um, plate
1: where the virus comes
0: in it's so, so interesting
1: you
0: and you spread it. it's so interesting to hear you say that i know i had covid uh clearly in early 2020 we were traveling to bahamas and uh, you know it took me a little bit to overcome it but then i you know i had that natural immunity and i participated in your studying so almost two years later still had natural immunity haven't had a cold or anything in two years and i've been exposed to so many people and i do think that's true and i i know like other um you know viruses when you've been exposed to them naturally and have overcome them naturally have a deeper lasting immunity, some of the childhood um, things that we've been exposed to as well. So, I mean, this is all information that needs to be accessible to all Canadians. I mean, what do you think now? We've had um, over a year to witness the rollout of the experimental vaccines. It's a new technology with the RNA. Um, There seems to be a number of issues. Some of them concern me. Uh, I have two sons who are soccer players and there's been a really Really disturbing a number of so- professional soccer players who have died of heart attacks after taking the experimental vaccine. What's going on there and why isn't the media reporting it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it, defies, it defies explanation. I mean, we know that the risk of myocarditis, for example, from the Pfizer product, let's just focus on that one, because sure. that's the one we're giving to, to people that are younger in Canada. And your chances of getting myocarditis, if you're a male under 24, is about 1 in 5,000, roughly. It's even much lower with Moderna. Now, that's symptomatic myocarditis. If you start to look at um, the asymptomatic myocarditis, it's about four times the larger number. So that means that your chances are probably getting closer to 1 in 1250 or 1 in 1500. That if you are vaccinated as a as a male, you're going to have basically myocarditis. So myocarditis and, is basically damage to your heart,
0: and that could be life-ending. So yeah, that could be life-ending. That that's a serious a- condition.
1: A- absolutely, we, we don't have any data, of course, for vaccine-induced myocarditis because we just started doing this. But we know for viral-induced myocarditis, the you have about a twenty percent chance of dying within six and a half years with the viral myocarditis so it clearly when you see cardiovascular disease is pretty much almost the number one killer very close to cancer yes and that's what most people die from is cancer cardiovascular disease about 90 percent of cases and you are damaging your heart as a young child and that's permanent damage because those muscle cells are not replaced by new muscle cells they're replaced by by fibroblastic cells, scar tissue, and instead, the surrounding muscle cells have to get bigger and carry on the extra workload, so the heart gets bigger, and that creates problems on its own when you start to accumulate with arteriosclerosis later in your life. You have higher blood pressure, more breakage of platelets, and it just puts you on a pathway to basically a much shorter life um uh, yes there's, there's no point in doing this for kids when they are at such low no
0: risk i i mean we need to stop the shots for kids basically i just heard another cardiologist in canada finally felt called to speak up and saying they're finally labeling uh it as a vaccine-induced uh, myocarditis and there's so many cases um, that it's it, it's it's hard to keep up at this point. I mean, I don't know what the actual number is. So, at one point, will people uh, be be able to say yes? We need to stop these shots for children. And I know Sweden already has said that the benefit doesn't outweigh the risk for having an experimental vaccine in young children, but Canada is still proceeding. So how can you, uh, how can we justify that given all this, the alarming safety data?
1: I mean, here's the, here's the stupidity of this. When we looked at myocarditis, well, when we looked at thrombosis, yes. from the Moderna vaccine, the clotting so was recognized that clotting was about 1 in 50,000 chance that if you took the Moderna, and we're talking about all age groups, that if you took the Moderna shot that you would get thrombosis and blood clotting that would which could actually cause heart attack and stroke. And so, in Ontario, they decided they were not giving this to the population anymore. In BC, we still do, but now we have myocarditis in children with a 1 in 5,000 chance, a tenfold greater chance. And we're talking about giving it from zero to four-year-olds now, never mind 5 eleven it's years. It's
0: disturbing. Old. It really is. And where is the Canada Health? Where are they? Where's the integrity there to go? You know what? The, the risk clearly outweighs the benefit. Children aren't at risk. We now have Omicron, which is, is, is a lot like a bad cold. Uh, you know, a lot of viruses, you look at the history of viruses, they move from lethality to transmissibility. That's a normal progression. It's kind of an amazing gift of nature. takes a, a strong virulent virus and it makes it less lethal, more transmissible. So you get more cases, but they're all mild. And that's what we're seeing with Omicron.
1: Yeah, well, you know, you have to understand that there are literally hundreds of thousands of viruses out there that can infect mammals, never mind, you know, other creatures, uh, other animal types. They're all out there, but very few of them are at- actually pathogenic in people, only a few hundred. And so what happens is the ones that are very pathogenic, they kind of co evolve with that species that's going to be um, susceptible to it. In many cases, it's so well co evolved that it causes no. And they become vectors. They can they can transmit the virus very easily because they're not killed by the virus or sickened by the virus, which would put them, you know, at at vulnerability. For example, to be eaten by a predator or something. So what happens is these our own immune systems evolve to recognize these viruses in your own lifetime, but over the course of you know hundreds of years, you know, we develop some of these. Uh, We select, I should say, evolutionarily those viruses that are very infectious and very benign, that they don't actually hurt us. And we're seeing in in the course of just a couple of years now, the evolution of SARS-CoV-2 to be from something that was a little bit more lethal and not quite as infectious to something that's highly infectious and, in fact, very mild. And it'll probably undergo further evolution. As time goes on, because that is the the, the mutant, and there's literally over 10,000 different mutants of yes. stars for CoV 2 that are described. But these ones are selected
0: mm-hmm. because
1: they have the characteristics they can outcompete all the other variants. Right. And have to meet that, those two criteria.
0: Fascinating.
1: Righteous and benign.
0: Yes. I mean, it's so interesting when you think of it. It gives people a lot of hope. We know now the virus is is uh, not lethal. It's transmissible. The other thing we haven't touched on, which is so important for Canadians to know, and it's another trigger point, because there's two silos in the world now of information, depending on what news uh, you read. But we know mm-hmm. definitively that we have safe treatments for COVID. We have ivermectin. We have hydroxychloroquine. We have a n- number of antivirals, steroids. I mean, it's it the the proven list of safe treatments is is large. I mean, even things like I call it quercetin, um, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc. Um, you know, all of these things work. Uh, even NAC to stop the viral uh, transmission and to, you know, provide that immune response. So why is it that Canada, again, is not allowing for these uh, safe drugs to be prescribed? Is isn't it, is it a, truly a, a matter of uh, profit over people? I mean, we're looking at very profitable experimental injections with no liability if anyone gets harmed versus unpatented safe treatments that are not very expensive pennies to, to I prescribe.
1: Think, I think it's a reflection of the lack of debate that's actually going along with the scientific community. It's being stifled. So a very few number of people are actually calling the shots of, of the entire health policies that we have. They're you know, highly, highly networked and they have a clear agenda in this case, for vaccination, if you have, for example, if they had approved these drugs and found that they worked, um, then there would be no reason why you could actually approve the vaccines as experimental uh, medicines. Yes. With emergency authorization in the U.S. and interim order in Canada, they would not have been able to do that if there was, in fact, treatments for the COVID-19 pandemic. Because conveniently there was none, they could actually fast track these uh, vaccines with relatively little safety data and immediately start putting it into the population en masse. I mean, we we've done a, an analysis of the Canadian Covid Care Alliance on this. It was the, the Pfizer inoculation more harm than good. And in fact, the same. Situation can be applied to the other vaccines that are yes. RNA vaccines or adenovirus vaccines, the ones we have in Canada currently. And so, you know, the the companies that sponsor these products, that you know, produce them and want them to be uh, sold, they are so intertwined into our healthcare system. The the in Canada, for example, with the um, Health Canada. Their major funding is coming from the drug companies. In yes, place, right?
0: it's right? terrible. So we're, Conflict we're, we're, of we're, interest. Yeah,
1: yes. Now, at the same time, you look at um, many of the health officials that are in the agencies like here in BC, you know, we have the BC Center for Disease Control. Well, in fact, after the Vancouver Foundation, the next major donor that's a private donor is Pfizer.
0: It's it's wrong. Yeah, it, it's definitely wrong.
1: And these I, people are, are really pushing the products. So in fact Pfizer's got a situation where they as do the other drug uh, and vaccine companies, they have no liability to these products. The government has no liability with these products. And so any kind of harms that come from it, the, the victims really have nowhere to go.
0: That's a tragedy. Yeah. On
1: top of that. When you have emergency use authorization or interim order authorization, the pharmaceutical companies they cannot mar- they cannot market their products. So instead, what's happened is the governments of Canada, United States, and other other countries they are the main marketing arm of these drug these uh, vaccines, which really are drugs. Yes. So although they changed the definition of, of a vaccine. Yes, I saw so that. that. Can be considered uh, vaccines; these drugs, and of course that means that the liability applies to them because they are considered now as vaccines. So the whole thing, the way it's been, kind of, there's a there's a lot of fishy stuff going on. That's for sure. But at the end of the day, the net result of this is really our healthcare systems compromised.
0: Yes. I've lost your I've lost your feed for a second there